0: Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of the Fancy Throwdown Podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Callender. Getting right into it because we have March Madness right around the corner, but we got more free agency news and we'll, we'll get to uh, the NFL, but uh, a quick update with baseball. Uh, we just had a signing by the Yankees uh, bringing back Anthony Rizzo on a two-year, $32 million deal. So that takes them out of the Freddie Freeman free stakes. And the bidders are dropping off because, again, I talked about this before about why you had the lockout. Because you got teams making business decisions, and they do not care. Case in point, Freddie Freeman, uh, the face of the Atlanta Braves have been has been phased out of Atlanta. Uh, the Braves trading four prospects, in, uh, including Christian Pache, uh, to the A's for Matt Olsen, whom people were linking to the Yankees the entire time. The reason why I didn't buy it because the Yankees haven't pulled off one of those trades for a young uh, 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 infield player in quite some time. It, they did the Gallo trade, and it still wasn't an, an, any time big time prospects because. Gallo was already making, uh, going to be making money in uh, arbitration. The Rangers were essentially trying to dump Gallo, which, you know, the Yankees took him off their hands. And, of course, they made the Donaldson trade, which I'm not going to get into again because we've been talking about it for a couple of days straight now. But, you know, I, that's why I didn't really buy the Olsen talk. But uh, Atlanta gave up a number of quality prospects to the degree that I couldn't see the Yankees making that commitment because that's just not how the Yankees have been operating lately. They've been trying to uh, ride the wave of uh, kind of uh, grinding out uh, uh, some of these well-established players, even if they are past their prime, and then sprinkling in younger players as they start breaking down. So... The Kyder uh, Kalefa, I, I, I can't believe the Yankees are actually viewing him as a starting uh, Major League shortstop for a contending team. It, it, to me, it's baffling. It is absolutely baffling that the plan is to go with Kyder Kalefa, Ian Kyder Kalefa, as the starting shortstop to, to begin the year. I think it's insane, uh, to be perfectly honest. I've watched enough Rangers games o- over uh, Texas Rangers, by the way. Uh, of course, I watched the... Uh, uh, the Rangers hockey team, of course, but the Texas Rangers—you know—in a hitter's ballpark, even before they made the move from Arlington, Kalefa couldn't hit. He cannot hit on a consistent level against a, a premier team, and you're you're putting him in the AL East with honestly better teams than he he was dealing with out west. I I, I just think this is baffling. Uh, we'll see how it works out, but, uh, we're going to get some boo birds in the Bronx when it comes to him at the plate, uh, the guaranteed, uh, on that one, because there's no way he should be viewed as a starting shortstop. And that seems to be the plan. They're going to still try to make, uh, they're still going to try to make Gleyber Torres at short, a platoon option. I mean, this is just, <laughs> You were better off leaving the status quo than what the Yankees did, in my opinion, because now the Yankees are banking on Donaldson somehow reversing father time and putting up numbers that are more reminiscent of uh, where he was four years ago at the age of 30. It's it just, it's bad optics to be honest uh, I I just don't, I don't get the valuation whatsoever, but you know they're running it back with Rizzo. I don't have an issue with Rizzo, but you know, again, you did a trade, and DJ Lemayhew is out in the ether, like no position to really go to, floating around. And they say they're going to sprinkle him here and sprinkle him there. Like it's 162 games. He's got to play. He's got to be playing somewhere in the, in the infield, using <laughs> using DJ LeMahieu in a DH role. It's utterly insane. And that's where the Yankees seem to be kind of stuck because you should be playing Rizzo every day at first. Obviously, uh, Void's out the uh, window at this point, but there's less room on the Yankees to move around, guys. And unless you're DHing Donaldson and having, again, you don't want to be playing Stanton too many games in the field Judges injury prone, the Yankees have got a bunch of holes and they still don't have left field resolve. So, again, I talked about this yesterday with the winker uh, being thrown in into the Suarez salary dump, how that was far more beneficial to the Yankees than what they actually did over the weekend. And it just looks worse because now that you, again, I'm not saying I dislike bringing back Anthony Rizzo but you get less seats at the table and there's a lot of inflexibility on that roster right now. So we'll see. We shall see. I I just look at it. It's bad roster construction. Whenever you have pieces that cannot be interchangeable and you've got an aging roster that is not getting any younger. So it is what it is, but uh, that is the latest update. Uh, the Braves. Uh, not only traded for Matt Olsen, signed him to an eight-year, $162 million extension, I believe, uh, but the uh, the case in point being, Matt Olsen's going to be making more money than Ronald Cunha and <laughs> Albies uh, over the average of his contract. Again, this is why... People were up in arms about the Acuna and Albies extensions because they signed way too low of an extension deal. It was a terrible offer by their agents. They did a terrible job. Yes, they got money, but they are so well underpaid for what the market actually bears for their skill sets. And now Matt Elsa just comes in uh, from Oakland, making more than they do. And yes, Matt is a nice player. Acuna and are way more valuable than Matt Olson. It's not even close. And he's making more than they are per year. I'm just saying it's just one of those things where your agency representation is of the utmost importance and knowing your value, you got to know it. it. When you're ever doing something in life, you got to know your value. And yes, they took a... The safer route of guaranteeing money up front, but long term, those deals are going to bite them uh, when they look back on how much money they left on the table. There's no question. There's no question. Uh, there's there's very little that uh, <laughs> uh, Acuna and Albies can say at this point, other than they signed deals that were well, well below their market value. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Braves took a cheaper option in Olsen than what they would have paid for Freeman. They're paying less per year than what they probably would have ended up doing for Freddie Freeman. Yes, he's the face of the franchise. The fans want him back. But at the end of the day, organizations are going to make decisions in their best interests. And sports fans have, like, they keep not learning this lesson in the fact that they do this all the time. And then they blame the players when the players look out for their best interests, it's like they're grown adults. You got you got to be able to make your own decisions. And Freeman's going to get paid more uh, in, a tw- in, in the tail end of his career. And the Braves are going to move on with a cheaper option. Who's younger? It, it is what it is. And Olson's a hometown guy anyway uh, for, uh, to the Atlanta area. So it'll work. It should work out. But I'm sure Braves fans would have rather had Freddie Freeman there for the entirety of his career. But, hey, that, that's uh, that's the way it breaks sometimes. It, it doesn't always work out that way, but he, he at least got him a title. So let's get to the NFL story I want to talk about. The Dallas Cowboys and free agency debacles. I love talking about the Cowboys. Uh, When it comes to this, because Jerry Jones, it's always fun. It's always fun. So the latest debacle is the fact that uh, Randy Gregory, who has been suspended multiple times by the NFL for uh, uh, substance abuse violations, uh, uh, mostly uh, tied. Well, basically, it's all been tied to marijuana. Let's just be honest. Uh, But he's been suspended multiple times, up for free agency. Had a solid enough year for the Cowboys, putting up numbers. I personally, I didn't think it was that much of a priority bringing him back. Just with the amount of issues the Cowboys had overall, collectively, paying for Randy Gregory didn't make a ton of sense. But the issue was the Marcus Lawrence, who is the Cowboys' best player on defense, took a pay cut to ensure that the Cowboys had enough money to bring back Randy Gregory. That was already established. So Demarcus Lawrence took the pay cut to bring uh, to get Randy Gregory resigned. Jerry Jones personally negotiated the Randy Gregory deal uh, to bring him back to the Cowboys, and the original terms of the deal, basically, the deal Randy Gregory had was a a five year. million contract that he agreed to with Jerry. So $28 million guaranteed. What happened? Stephen Jones, Jerry's son, who technically has a vice president or president role within the Cowboys, it's very confusing. Jerry supposedly has the final say, but Stephen oftentimes contradicts his own father and sabotages deals. Like what happened in this case, because he thinks Jerry's going overboard. So, what does Steven do? Steven starts tweaking the guaranteed money on the back end after Randy Gregory already agreed to re-sign with the Cowboys and uh the bonus money. Gregory's camp gets wind of this. His agent flips out. Gregory's pissed off because technically he did have other offers. They didn't say who uh made the offer, but it was probably the Jacks. Uh in terms of uh, signing a new deal than what he had agreed to with the Cowboys. So he gave, he, according to them, he gave up money. And so he backed off the deal and signed with the Denver Broncos in the same day for the same five-year, $70 million contract, uh, $28 uh, million guaranteed, that he agreed to uh, Jerry Jones. Jerry now is fuming because Randy Gregory just left For the same amount of money that he had agreed to with Jerry just previously, they were drawing up the paperwork until Steven got involved. So it looks like the Cowboys went back on the word, which is exactly what happened because Steven didn't like the deal and uh, Jerry didn't run it by him because Jerry does whatever he wants. He owns the team and he's not going to fire himself. So they are in complete disarray. Gregory uh, signs with the Broncos. The Cowboys are now at a spot where they may need to pay more up front for Von Miller on a short-term deal because they actually do need a pass rush. And Demarcus Lawrence is pissed because he gave up more money to bring back Gregory when he didn't need to because it looks like Stephen Jones had different plans anyway. Love the Cowboys being as dysfunctional as they are. You gotta love it. And, you know, as I'm saying this, there's also talk now of rumblings that Baker Mayfield's getting traded. Uh, A lot going on this NFL offseason, but uh, we will get into March Madness now because uh, we're already almost 15 minutes in. So let's start breaking down uh, these regions. So I'm actually going to start off with the region that I'm still thinking is pretty much straightforward. So. Uh, We're going to start with the West region overall, and obviously we've got Gonzaga as the number one seed, Duke as the number two seed. So you've got uh, Gonzaga and Duke up top. I'm not overly impressed with the region as a whole. You have some dark horses uh, that I look at in terms of UConn, Memphis could be a problem, but I want to talk about the top two seeds first. So... Gonzaga and Duke, obviously the West is supposed to be overall the weakest region, hence you have uh, Gonzaga as the overall number one seed. Never thought Duke was a two seed, let alone the top number two seed. So them, uh, well, technically they're the weakest number two seed, so they're the last number two seed to get in, hence why they're matched up against Gonzaga. But be that as it may, Never really viewed Duke as a two seed, and surprisingly enough, even though I didn't think this region was that tough, the data models that I'm looking at. So I'm look I'm looking at TeamRankings.com. I'm looking at uh, the Athletic and their swing shot model. The interesting part about this is the fact that Duke is the lowest ranked uh, number two seed to make it to the Sweet Sixteen, percentage wise. Because Duke is uh, just under uh, just under 63% compared to the other uh, number two seats. So, obviously, uh, you've got <clears throat> Villanova, you've got Kentucky, and you have Auburn. Duke is the lowest ranked out of all uh, four of them. So, I thought that was interesting just because I'm not overly impressed by Duke's region. But even by a data model standpoint... The models are saying Duke isn't as nearly as much of a uh, of a sure bet to make it to the Sweet 16, even in a weaker region. But on a percentage basis, the public uh, where the estimates are trending towards, you still have the public betting uh, Duke to make it to the Sweet 16 at uh, in excess of eighty percent. The, the most popular number 2 seed is Kentucky because they they have uh, the Wildcats at nearly uh, 88% uh advancing into the sweet 16 uh, based off of uh what uh, the data is showing from the public so the the public is in love with Kentucky duke definitely uh is uh, second uh second in in terms of the picks but from a data model standpoint, when we're looking at the West itself, though, Duke, you've got a variance, negative variance of actually making it to the Sweet 16 versus the public. And you're going to see that with the higher seats, but Duke, it's a little bit uh, more transparent seeing how much of a discrepancy it is compared to some of the others. So you're getting a wider range because they're as popular with the public. Versus the statistical odds uh, from the data models of Duke making it. Now, that's not to say Duke can't make it because, obviously, they still have uh, over a 60% chance of making it into the Sweet 16. But, as you start making your way into into, uh, uh, the Elite Eight in percentage odds-wise, so, you gotta look at it and say, where... Uh, Where does it uh, look for uh, uh, elite eight odds? You know, Duke, you're getting into the 47% range uh, uh, with the public, and their odds are uh, still on the lower end because you're seeing the data models support the fact that Duke isn't as favored for a deep run. Nova's not a uh, favorite for a deep run. So, you have a a ceiling cap uh, in in that regard. Now, again, I'm not in love with Texas Tech either. So, it may be a case of early rounds. Yes, uh, everyone's picking Duke. But, as I stated before, I'm not in love with this region. And as fewer people begin to pick Duke, and they'll start to deviate into that second weekend, Duke, while not a tremendous pick by any regard, having uh, Duke becomes less of an issue as you get further into the tournament because people are expecting Duke to make it a Sweet Sixteen, and it, uh, and then you're you're going to start seeing. Upset bids, uh, uh, brackets, uh, uh, place Texas Tech in uh, over Duke uh, to begin with uh, in the second uh, in that uh, Sweet Sixteen, going into the Elite Eight. Again, I look at it from the standpoint of if you're looking at Texas Tech and uh, as the three seed, and we'll, we'll talk about uh, the Red Raiders. I mean Texas Tech and. Again, you look through all the defensive metrics. Texas Tech is in my opinion the best defensive team in the tournament. It basically boils down to that that much. However, I will say though that in terms of their style of play, you know, the adjusted defensive efficiency, they're number 1 in Kempom rankings. The area that I kind of get worried about with Uh, tech is the fact that they're 211th in tempo and Houston's another team where again low tempo teams uh and that's 211 out of like 300 plus uh teams so you get into these situations where I have a little bit uh harder time adjusting the teams see if they were a little bit more efficient on offense, I wouldn't worry nearly as much. UCLA has this issue, too, where they're a low-tempo team, but they're both efficient on offense and defense. We'll get to UCLA in, in, uh, in, uh, coming up in uh, a future uh, region breakdown, but I, I look at Texas Tech as a case where, yes, statistically, you definitely rank them higher than Duke. So in terms of, uh, of a potential matchup down the road, I would still lean more towards uh, Texas Tech over Duke, even though I'm not necessarily in love with Texas Tech. But again, this depends on your scoring format, because at the end of the day, you're going to start uh, needing to nail down these Elite Eight picks and get them right. I think you're you're still getting a big percentage of the public banking on either an early upset for Duke, so they'll take Michigan State uh, over Duke. Uh, and it's not as though Duke get, uh, can't get knocked out. I mean, I just told you, Duke has a sixty uh, uh, is just over sixty percent chance, according to the data models, of making it to the Sweet Sixteen. So it's not out of the realm possibility that Michigan State knocks them out uh, because they're they're given a little bit under of a 25% chance of winning that game against Duke. So it is a legit upset possibility. And depending on uh, your format and where you're playing, you may even get a higher percentage of people calling for that Michigan State upset. So, you know, if you got Michigan State alumni in your brackets, you have a kind of good sense that, you know, you could have more than 20% of the pool picking Michigan State over Duke. And it wouldn't be the craziest thing in the world to then just go with uh, the team that's still expected to win in Duke and try to head off the competition that way. So you're constantly uh, gauging who's in your pool, what's your scoring format, how many brackets you're playing. Because in this region, I could see Duke getting uh, getting to the Elite Eight, and I could see Te- uh, Texas Tech getting to the Elite Eight. The teams that I have a difficult time wrapping my arms around are Alabama and Michigan State, because I think from a st- uh, just a statistical standpoint, Alabama is one of the more susceptible teams, in my opinion, Of getting bounced in the first round. They were 19-13 on the year. They were one of. The least impressive defensive teams. uh, Coming into the tournament. Uh, In terms of. How they got in. They got in based off of. A strength of schedule. uh, uh, Consideration. In the rankings of how many tough opponents they play. But I would. Also beg to argue that they got beat by most of the tougher teams that they played. So it makes it a little bit harder to digest Alabama because I think they're going to be facing similar competition level in uh, the winter of Rutgers, Notre Dame, where again, depending on your scoring format, if you're doing value on top of the seed or you're doing multiplication, you may be, Backed into a corner where you need to be picking some upsets in this region, and the upset people have been gravitating towards is Vermont over Arkansas. The issue with uh, uh, so uh, Alabama is the six seed versus the the playing game winner of Rutgers Notre Dame. Uh, Arkansas is the four seed. People are uh, the popular pick has been leaning towards going, uh, the Vermont side of things. Now here's, uh, here's where we kind of look at the numbers. Depending on the data model you're looking at, you're going anywhere from a 30 to 33% chance of an upset by Vermont. Now, depending on the format of your contest, that in of itself is worthy of consideration from a value theory standpoint of getting the upset points, if you're adding the seed, or better yet, multiplying the seed, uh, I would say if you're m- multiplying the seed times uh, the round value, Vermont makes a ton of sense. Mainly because you still have uh, uh, a couple of big dudes uh, in the interior where uh, you got Ryan Davis. Uh, uh, who I believe was a transfer portal uh, player that came in, but he's 6'8", 250 in, in the post. And Vermont's playing style, they take a ton of threes. Uh, they shoot over 37% uh, from three-point range. Most of their field goal attempts, uh, I believe it was 42% of their field, uh, field goal attempts were from the three-point range. Now, those are signs where they like to stretch, uh uh stretch you out and, and take jump shots. Now, when you're playing Arkansas, the the counterpoint to that is Arkansas loves to run. They like to get on the boards, they like to run. Eric Musselman's gonna be pacing up and down the sideline like a uh like the madman he is as a coach. But they're gonna be hustling. If Vermont is going to play as slow as they do because they were 288th in pace and they start missing their threes, Arkansas can get back in the game even if they're down. So this is one of those where I like the upset if we're doing this based off of additional value on top of the seat. If we're doing a standard build where you're just getting the one point for who the winner is, it's not nearly as advantageous, in my opinion, trying to chase the upset with Vermont, because I can see how this game goes, where if Vermont, you know, again, they shoot well from three-point range, but it's not as though they're absolutely going to shoot the lights out of the building. It's like, you know, they're still shooting 37%, but, It's still 37%. When you have a team along the lines of an Arkansas, that's, uh, I believe, I want to say it's either top three or top four in terms of uh, overall tempo. And they're actually kind of crashing boards. I don't necessarily love uh, the pace of uh, matching up a team that plays slow against a team that wants to run up and down the court. That's where I get a little bit worried about, uh, I get a little bit worried about uh, uh, the Vermont upset pick, because I I could see how Arkansas takes care of business against Vermont if Vermont doesn't uh, shoot at an incredible clip to justify it. So this is one of those where, yes, I definitely could see the upset happening, it's just one of those where it's it's a specific win condition for Vermont uh, that I'm I can certainly take a couple of stabs on, but I'm not going to go too crazy over the actual uh, actual pick itself. The line of the game itself, though, is still at which it has the line at like five and a half. So again, it's not a huge spread. Uh, so don't get me wrong. It's just one of those where I kind of look at it and say, "You you have other upset picks that are going to be playing that day, and again, we'll get to them in in some of these other regions where it's it's a tighter spread. So you could make a a case where you know that UConn game again." Not necessarily saying it, it, because I actually like UConn, but if we're going by spread uh, pick, they're only a six and a half point favorite uh, over uh, New Mexico State. So again, a lot of folks have been talking up uh, the Arkansas getting upset, but if you're looking at the spread, UConn is pretty much in the same boat uh, as Arkansas. so uh you know it's a 512 matchup for Yukon so folks love uh betting on those 512 matchups and it's it just interesting that uh in terms of upset uh plays there's been far more talk on Arkansas getting upset by Vermont than UConn getting upset even though the spread is very similar Yukon data model wise it's rating out to chance of advancing Arkansas just under 66%. But if you're looking at the public, uh, percentages of, uh, of how the picks are going, you'll see the public is backing both teams at a a similar clip. So it it depends on how much you value trying to get an edge early over your competition. Because if it were me, I'm looking at this, uh, the, depending, again, on the scoring format of the bracket, but I'm leaning this more towards, okay, we've got a decent chance of Vermont pulling off an upset on Arkansas. UConn should be in pretty good shape against New Mexico State. Uh, If you match Vermont up against UConn, you know, based off of uh, looking at uh, some of the hypothetical matchups, of Yukon versus of Vermont realistically this leans uh this leans more towards a uh, Yukon uh, getting their routes 2 thirds of the time about 67% uh, just under uh, just a shade under that so again it's still a, you still got a shot with Vermont if you want to go deep Uh, with Vermont in a pool where you're going to bank in extra points for upset value it just depends on your scoring format me personally I do like UConn's odds uh, moving forward into the Sweet 16 so I'm not as concerned about uh, calling for upset bids but you know, if I'm, if I'm taking a shot in the dark, Vermont is around a 15% chance of making it to the sweet 16. So it depends on how much edge you're willing to visit because outside of all the dark horse candidates and even Memphis is uh, uh, just under a 14% chance of pulling off an upset against Gonzaga, get to the sweet 16 Vermont's higher from like, if we're going off of a, a scoring format, Vermont's going to rack you up more points than a Memphis will, and Gonzaga's still the best team in this region. So to me, you can roll with a Vermont, depending on your scoring format, and that is your best bet of getting different from brackets if you want to have a bit of a surprise and someone making it into the Sweet 16. Vermont had a 15% clip that's worth rolling the dice uh depending on your scoring format if you can bank in that 13 seed value into your sc- into your point total uh for two rounds uh, and 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 you don't have to get that much different in some of your other uh, bracket regions if you've got a Vermont into the sweet 16 but that's the thought process of one way to go about it I know, uh, folks, were also talking at, uh Davidson. The issue I see with Davidson, and again, data model-wise, they graded out pretty well. They had a 14% chance of making the Sweet 16. Because you may not like Duke, it may make sense to uh, call for that upset, but the I'm telling you, a popular pick is going to be Michigan State uh, upsetting Duke. And I don't necessarily like Michigan State all that much to feel that great about the pick. And if the you're still going to get over twenty percent of public calling for that uh, up uh, upset because again, some folks are alumni. It, it, it will influence your pool. The bigger the name, the school. Michigan State historically gets more steam, the larger your pool size is, the more you're going to see outliers in Michigan State and North Carolina are amongst those outliers of teams that, even though they're underdogs in certain matchups, they're getting a ton of uh, steam in terms of selection picks, and it influences your bracket pool. So it's always good to take a a quality survey of who's in your pool and kind of know what... uh, if they're alumni, they got an f- affiliation with a particular school or lean for a particular school, and you can start kind of game planning how you're going to approach it. But the na- the teams that I I look at and to, to be under serious consideration, I I would say you're looking at that Rutgers Notre Dame game because I think they're both talented enough. To pull off an upset on Alabama, and you're looking at Vermont uh, for uh, potential consideration on this, mainly because if you get if you get that uh, playing game winner over Alabama, I know I've talked about Texas Tech being a defensive squad, but sometimes they get into those offensive droughts. And you can catch them. And it's just one of those things where you play a team that isn't great at scoring and it's a back-to-back because you ha- always have to remember that second game is a less than 48-hour turnaround from you got the opening round jitters, you got that out of the way, you got a less than 48-hour turnaround to prep for a team that you haven't seen most likely all year long. And in scouting and everything else, the things that usually suffer the most are on the defensive end because you're you're trying to make switches, you're trying to make defensive uh, changes on a squad that you haven't really prepped hard for because you didn't know if you were going to play them or not. So to me, that's why I, I like backcourt play when it comes to NCAA tournament, and I like teams that have an ability to score without shutting the other team down defensively. Because, yes, while you can shut down the team defensively, if you're struggling to score, it makes it that much harder for you to close out games unless you're an excellent free-throw shooting team. And a lot of these teams are just not that. So it's it ends up becoming a little bit of a, a trickier situation. So, again, depending on your scoring format, I'm looking at the playing game winner, the, the 11 seed, and I'm looking at Vermont because you can get value out of those uh, seeds uh, with additional point total. And it's not necessarily going to crush you if you miss on them uh, just because of uh, uh, of the point allocation in the early rounds. But uh, my preference would be leaning towards Vermont. Even though I could see Arkansas winning that game, it's worth a stab depending on the scoring format of your bracket. Now, in terms of the overall winner for the region, I'm still in in the mindset of Gonzaga overall uh, making it the Final Four. It, they've got just under a 50% chance of making it out of the region. Next up, you got uh, Texas Tech at uh, just under uh, 14%. Duke is actually below Texas Tech. And again, I talked about this. The Ken Palm rankings have Texas Tech above Duke. Uh, Duke's under uh 12%, and then it falls, it falls off after that. You got Arkansas well under 10%. I think they were under, uh, at, yeah, they're under 7%. Uh, you got UConn, and again, UConn's one of those interesting plays where depending on how you want to build out your roster, if you're picking UConn for an upset over Gonzaga, you really don't need to be going crazy picking upsets in other regions. That's enough of a, a disruption to brackets because Gonzaga is so popular again this year that having them knocked out by UConn in, the Sweet, in a potential Sweet 16 matchup, that already gets you different enough that in most uh, uh, smaller pools, you're 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 golden already because you're different and you've banked in points because you didn't get too crazy in the other regions while calling uh, the big upset of the tournament in the Sweet 16 with the overall number one getting knocked out. So, again, food for thought as to how to approach building out your lineup for the West region. Again, end of the day, I still lean heavily towards Gonzaga, but it's not the craziest thing in the world Uh having uh, these alternatives uh, uh, being uh, presented because it does make a difference uh, uh, come your bracket selections as to how folks want to approach uh, uh, the thought process but going going chalk isn't the answer but revisiting some of the uh, prior concepts of what the uh, what has worked in the past I, I am very much in favor of it so you're getting the value seed uh, uh, boost with many squads, and you know it kind of comes down to uh, how these uh, regions were arranged. This is a weaker region, but because it's a weaker region, you get some value out of the double-digit seeds, uh, make it a run, and so I be I be looking at. Uh, I'd be looking at the playing game winner and I'd be looking at uh, Vermont as well. So we shall see how it all plays out, but that's my uh, initial thoughts on the West region uh, as a whole. And we will get to uh, the remaining regions as well in upcoming episodes, but that does it all for now have a good one folks and best of luck to you in your uh, tournament brackets. Thanks for listening to the fantasy throwdown podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other major outlets.